0: You know within hospital we are interventionalists we are addressing a need or addressing a question with x is the answer and a lot of the time mental illness psychiatric care it's not necessarily that you're going to have the answer how do you lead that person to their own answer when i say it's difficult it's difficult because perhaps we're not focusing as much care and attention as we need to about forming relationships and rapport as is required but i'd like to take a moment of your time to think about how many individuals you have met in a hospital setting who aren't suffering in some way with their mental health and well-being.
1: Welcome to Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious situations and illness as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Stragan. So a content warning to listeners for this episode, the subject material may be particularly alarming for some listeners. We discuss aspects of mental health crises and potentially life-threatening situations. So let your inner wisdom guide you about if and how you listen to this conversation. Nowhere is communication more essential than when people are experiencing a mental health crisis. These situations arise everywhere in the community, in acute care settings, and in long-term care homes. How can we navigate these situations to maintain safety and dignity? In this episode, Matthew Payette describes his experiences in various settings and shares some possibilities for others who must respond to people in crisis and by stepping into the moment, into the unknown, to make a connection and build trust. Matthew Payette is a master's prepared registered nurse with specialty certification in psychiatric and mental health nursing. He's worked for many years in community service alongside police, responding to emergency mental health situations and particularly mental health crises. He's currently working as a clinical nurse specialist in a hospital based consultation liaison psychiatry team in Ontario, Canada. So Matthew, welcome. I am so thrilled to be able to speak with you. You have lots of experiences in caring for people with mental illness and mental health issues, uh, both in institutions and in the community. And being as we're all so concerned about mental illness and wellness these days, this conversation will, will serve to... Give us some foundations, I think, around how to communicate with people who have uh, a serious illness, so that might be a mental illness, or maybe people who are seriously ill who also have a mental illness, or folks who have a mental illness and maybe are experiencing some crisis situation. So we'll kind of go all over the map, if you'll permit me. So uh, you have practiced in community and hospital settings. What are some of the situations or illnesses that we would say are serious with regards to mental health or mental illness?
0: So there's there's a few situations that I think come readily to my mind about what would be considered serious. Uh, Often we think of working in the community that serious mental illness would be those situations uh, when you think of where there is police involvement at times. Uh, So this could be somebody who is sitting on a bridge with a desire or perhaps no desire, but perhaps just, there's no conversation at the time and they're just standing there and a citizen will phone concerned about this individual. And so the seriousness of that is the unknown. Why is that person there? Or it seems apparent, you know, sitting on the ledge of it or hanging, you know, looking over, looking over it from like a unsafe perspective. There's also the serious events where somebody is experiencing a crisis of sorts, whether this is due to a psychotic illness or whether they're under the influence of specific substances that mimic a lot of psychotic illnesses. So I would say those two are some pretty serious points and serious um, interventions or spaces for intervention um, within the community practice that I had been involved in, which was a crisis response team that had partnered with Hamilton Police. There's also the other serious pieces, which is making a decision for a family member who is no longer capable of caring for themselves, uh, specifically um, behaviors and psychological symptoms of dementia and family being unable to provide care or unable to meet the needs of that care in their home, which is a very difficult conversation. Or there's family members who are looking at their family, their loved one who is experiencing some, I guess you could say, I'm not going to say degradation, but definitely more complications due to their mental illness. And that's individuals who maybe aren't taking care of themselves the way that you would in the community, and they're concerned for their well-being. So there's conversations with family about that. And then there's also conversations around rights and what an individual is allowed to do in the community. So there's lots of different spaces for serious conversations in the community, and those directly translate as well into the hospital, uh, talking about a lot of those same themes, safety at home, safety in a non-enclosed environment. Um, supports that are available or not available when they are to return when they leave a hospital setting, uh, family's involvement with that patient, patient's choice, patient's rights. I think that this is initially how you and I became connected was through that class, through communications and serious illness. And my perspective was looking for tools and looking for better ways, or even perhaps to offer my perspective of like how difficult it is to have conversations in relation to mental health and mental illness. And so I suppose that's how this all started.
1: So when you say when you say it's difficult, uh, so uh, do you mean difficult in terms of uh, the situations that you're just describing? Difficulty, you know, with, with patients and families or to have conversations in general with uh, healthcare professionals about caring for people who have mental health needs?
0: I think it's difficult in large part related to health literacy, I think, around mental health and mental illness. And I mean this kindly in that even within our own healthcare system, it is not it's not an expected learning outcome. Like we, we kind of graze over the surface of it a lot of the time. And we don't go into the depth that is required to really understand what it is to form a connection with somebody. I know that from the beginning of my own nursing education, and I think that what is still practiced now is that we really focus on therapeutic communication and building that relationship and rapport. But perhaps it's because within mental health or in psychiatric nursing, that is the intervention. Rapport is everything. Relationship is everything. So we really do focus on building that connection with that person, which takes time. And it's not necessarily just to say, I've asked these questions to ensure that I write the right documentation that I have asked these questions, which, you know, within hospital, we are interventionalists. We are addressing a need or addressing a question with, you know, X is the answer. And a lot of the time, mental illness, psychiatric care, it's not necessarily that you're going to have the answer. There are parts of it for sure, but other parts, it's just sort of how do you lead that person to their own answer? And so when I say it's difficult... It's difficult because perhaps we're not focusing as much care and attention as we need to about forming relationships and rapport as is required. We don't focus on all the diverse settings um, or different diagnoses. Now, that's not entirely the most prominent piece. But I'd like to take a moment of your time to think about how many individuals you have met in a hospital setting who aren't suffering in some way with their mental health and well-being. I know that the oft-touted statistic is that it is one in four of every Canadians suffers with a mental illness or struggles with their mental health. I would say that without any ability to say statistically that it's one in two or one in one of every person who's in the hospital. And so I think that we really need to focus that everybody should have a good background understanding of mental illness and communication and such. So, I guess that's why it's difficult.
1: Yeah. And I think how you're pointing out that very often there's not a right answer or a particular outcome at a certain point, uh, that it's more process oriented, maybe. And that is uh, perhaps not a good fit with our outcome based uh, systems where we're looking for certain things. Um, in a very short period of time.
0: I agree. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 we're, we can't focus on the end result. We really do have to focus on the process of the relationship building. I wish I was able to pull more specific data about how there is better uptake when there is a good relationship between yeah. the physician who's caring for the patient more than the interventions, including the medications themselves. So if you have a good relationship, you are more likely to have better uptake, which means that you're going to have better outcomes, which means that a relationship is everything in psychiatry.
1: Mm -hmm. And so for nurses as well. So can we just, I'd like to explore some of the uh, contexts that -hmm. that you've been in um, and kind of mine those to find the relational work that... uh, that you were doing in those. So, uh, look, can we just talk about the community? You had a very unique role in community. Can you can you describe that?
0: I was lucky to have garnered the opportunity to work specifically as a nurse um, who responded to crisis situations in partnership with the police service. Uh, so it was called the Mobile Crisis Rapid Response Team, and it was partnered through the Coast program, so crisis outreach and support team. It was a a sub role that was developed due to the emerging needs to have somebody in the cruiser there ready to go immediately rather than wait for follow-up. And it was a way of addressing that need to have somebody who was a practitioner in some manner that understood that person's well-being or understood that illness to a better degree as we had been trained to do so compared to officers who prior had not had any of that training. There has been movement to give them a basic understanding on how to interact and engage but there is always more work to be done and so this role would have me intervene in situations that I never would have expected um, whether this is responding as I was indicating somebody is on a bridge and it was a passerby who calls and you're going in with maybe five minutes to prepare. Maybe you know that person's name. Maybe you don't. Maybe you know that person's history. Maybe you don't. You're going in about as blind as you possibly can to that person's situation and story. And you have to create a relationship. And I'm thankful that I had a really good mentor in that program who I still look up to And he is quite a formidable worker who had been in this service well over 20 years now, as another nurse who had started at his beginning of his career in that same role. And he had said, You have five minutes to make a relationship. So you have to find a way to connect to that person right away. And in most cases, you're just looking for that one thing that connects you to that person, whether this is a similarity that you share, whether this is through, um, understanding or an empathetic response or just asking what's going on. And maybe this is the first time that they've heard that, or maybe that's just what they needed to hear. What's going on and how can I help? I want to do whatever I can to make sure that I'm supporting you. And that's kind of how you would open almost every conversation. And that works if somebody is in a space where they might be okay to listen or might be able to listen. There are other situations where that person is under the influence of, specific stimulants in the community and there may not be much listening or there may not be much understanding at that moment so again you're still trying to form this connection or this rapport and maybe it's just something so simple as just engaging with the experience that they're having you know we often say don't buy in or don't support whatever delusional thinking they might be experiencing but that doesn't mean that you can't support their reality which is This may not be what I'm experiencing, but I can understand that this is what you are experiencing. And that means that to you, this is real and to you, this is something that is concerning. So how can I address those concerns? What would make those concerns less? And that in itself can sometimes be helpful. However, not always. And sometimes there is action where that person may have such volatile actions that this is the reason why we are accompanied by police. They're there for our safety. They're also there for that person's safety. And I know from personal experience that they do everything in their possible power to make sure that that person leaves at the end of the day. All of us leave at the end of the day. So I really emphasize that they do everything in their power to make sure that everyone is safe, which is hard, and it's really hard, and it's often a moment's notice, and I don't think we give them enough credit for that and I think we need to really realize that having worked next to them
1: I'm struck by what you said around creating a connection you've got you know maybe a minute or five minutes to establish a connection um mm-hmm. uh, and so really that that is a therapeutic uh, connection because of the nature of your intervention your you're a therapeutic uh, role in a therapeutic role um so can you talk more about that? because i'm I'm thinking that that's something all of us need to be able to do very quickly and uh, not just out, you know, in the community, in situations like that, but even in emergency departments or in um, medical units or surgical units or uh, you know, home care, et cetera, where people may be, uh, you know, in crisis. and, uh, it may be the first thing that comes to our mind is to say, "Don't do that," or "Calm down," or something. So, uh, what? How can you counsel and just some elaborate a little bit more than than what you've done around how it is that you sense out, you know, an approach under extreme time constraints.
0: Often, I think of. A rather, I guess I call it funny statement, which is, um, Pat, when was the last time you ever told somebody to calm down and they calmed down? Uh, We're I famous think.
1: for that, aren't we, though? We say <laughs> that, I say this, we, and nurses, uh, I
0: think, say yeah. this quite
1: a bit to people. Absolutely. Relax, relax calm down.
0: I don't why don't you why don't you go like you need to calm down or you need to relax or stop <laughs> yeah. it? Um, if somebody was able to do any of those things, they probably wouldn't be coming to our attention in the first place.
1: So you're saying those things don't they don't work?
0: Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they work at all. Okay. Uh, so I, I think I think this is probably thankfully that I was uh, connected to the organization that I'm with at the time and. From the beginnings of my career, we started taking a trauma informed care approach. You know, that we acknowledge that a person, that we only see a picture of that person's life situation, you know, that we have to also take that holistic approach that the things that have happened to them in the past and the present is going to inform what we are seeing at the moment. It means that we're really, we're going to try to focus on healing. That person. And I so, in from that approach, I guess the tools that I would have is that you have to think that this person is doing the, the best that they are doing the best they can with the tools that they have or the skills that they were given. And so taking that as the first step, I think to every interaction has been what has served me the best. And I I say this not only in healthcare, I say this when I'm teaching students. That we need to have a little more grace with every person we interact with, whether this be in life or healthcare or personal relationships, that they are doing everything they can with the tools that they were given. And how blessed are we that we have been given more tools? Empathy as, as a term is about being connected to that individual or understanding or being open to understanding that individual story that we may not have the same experience, but we understand their experience or we're willing to accept their experiences their own. And I suppose I'm, I'm lucky in a, in a way for the experiences that I have had, that it makes it easier for me to relate to others. And that relation has led to better outcomes, I suppose. Uh, I, I often mention this, and I don't mean often, often, but I I speak to either students or other healthcare providers about my lived experience. And that lived experience has really tailored my trajectory within nursing.
1: So what are some of the things that you would do in establishing that connection? You mentioned, um, you did mention a couple of uh, phrases maybe, but are there other things? So, because what I, I think I'm hearing you say is no matter, except perhaps if someone is, uh, under an influence of substances where they have no ability to listen or respond, understand, or that most of the time there's some way to try and connect, whatever that means. Maybe, maybe that's the first thing. What does that mean to say to connect?
0: What does that mean?
1: Like, is it just that they understand that you're there? Uh, you're there not to hurt them.
0: It's building trust, and how do you build trust? So, how, how do you, you build trust? How do you build trust? Each is so individual, and I think that's really, I think that's the 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 real thing. I think I'm trying to get at is that you need to find that thing that connects the two of you. Okay. Whether this is that I've had moments where I've sat down with a 15 year old. Gentleman who was struggling with parents. And so what ended up happening is that he was in his room and he was angry. And then he just sat down on the floor. So I sat down with him. You know, getting on that person's level. These are these are fundamental when we talk about establishing therapeutic communication and rapport, but getting on that person's level. I sat down in his destroyed room that he had been so upset that he had, you know, thrown things around. I just sat down with him right next to him. Uh, I wasn't afraid of him being angry with me and we just sat down and he was crying and I spoke with him and we talked about all of the struggles that he's having about, you know, not getting validation from his parents about the struggles that he was experiencing and his feelings weren't feeling heard. So again, being that person says listening to that, to them, whether this is just trying to say, I may not understand your situation, but I understand that your feelings are valid. So Validation is the most important piece. Getting next to that person right on their level. Being soft, I think tone of voice is the most is one of the most important pieces there in that you have to be confident what you're saying, but not pressured. You want to be warm, but also not necessarily building expectations, but just building hope for that person through. Suppose the words or the, the things that they're saying, the, the breadcrumbs that they're leaving as they're communicating with you. And this could be that, you know, no one ever listens to me. Repeat back, you know, like you say that no one's listening to you. What makes you think that no one listens to you? And they give you more examples, and then you build each statement. You're having a conversation. We often get so stuck in psychiatry that we're filling out um, a checklist in our minds. You know, one of the most respected tools is the mental status exam. Which is a list of 14 criteria that we go through that can help us understand a person's presentation. And then this is a, it's a valid and well respected and very useful tool. But we can't go into the conversation expecting to just go through that checklist. If you're having a conversation with somebody, those things will come out naturally and you can find spaces to insert them you're like well what are you thinking about what's going on in your mind right now and then you can build those pieces and talk about safety and feelings and what they're thinking and you know what's going on in their mind and i guess it's hard pat to just say that like, to give somebody a tool when the tool is have a conversation with somebody treat every person not as a patient but as a person they have a story they have a narrative they have a life they have goals they have Feelings. And if you just ask and ask and ask questions, that person will be heard and they will give you everything. Because I think maybe that was the key to my success in building those relationships so quickly, is because it wasn't about a goal that I had in mind. It was about I wanted to know what that person was going through. And I wanted them to have a safe space to say anything they needed to. And I think maybe that's what I learned quickly from other people in my role. And
1: how is it that they're understanding that it's safe, that this is, you're, you're not threatening them? I mean, you've talked about getting down on their level. Uh, you know, they're sitting, that you sit, you're not standing over, uh, you're thinking about your voice tone. You are picking up on their cues. Are, are is there is there anything else or this safety emerges from that? Like they start to they start to settle?
0: I think yes. I think those parts add to that. You know, we can talk about open body posture, non-threatening, non-challenging statements, uh, using I language rather than you language. Like those are really important pieces that all oh, can you continue. give an example
1: of that? Can you give it like an example of the I versus
0: the you? Of course, um, you know, we can think about like, I want to make sure that I'm supporting you or I want to help you, um, rather than you need to back away or you need to get away from that space or you need to calm down, right? The idea is that it's, it's, I'm taking the, the burden of the expectation. You know, I, I really want to understand what's going on. I really want to help you. I really want to make sure that I can do what you need to make sure that everybody goes home safe. I want to, in. I want to make sure that you get what you need so that you're heard, you know, and what's going through your mind. Like, I, I want to make sure that I can kind of you know, help you through that. Again, it's all, I want to help you. I want to be there for you, not you need to change this. You need to alter this. You need to be responsible for this. And it's just, and that's the thing is a lot of the time we get very paternalistic within healthcare, which is you need to take your medications. You need to make sure that you're following up on your blood pressure. You need to make sure you go to your appointments. It is just, it's very, we know more than thou. And I think that if you understand that that person has their own story, their own tools, their own skills, or narrative, that you you will find easier buy in. People like, you know what? I, I can tell you things. Right? And again, it's that, that creation of the trust and the communication is all about building a relationship, which is that you are two equal partners in this. And so, Yes, I think it is. I just continue to speak and respond and that creates that safety. You know, a caveat to that is it's not always me. You know, the people that I was trained to work with, sometimes I become the enemy just purely by visual or purely by some word that I had said that wasn't correct. And you have to be willing and safe to say that, okay, this person, my partner who works with me for many years, you seem to trust them. So what is it you want or what is it that you're connecting with them? And I think that something that was really people don't seem to necessarily understand is that sometimes police is a safe place to communicate. Using an example if somebody is psychotic, delusional, they have identified that they feel like somebody is after them. So they want to report that information to the police. Why are you sending somebody who has training in mental health and mental illness and psychiatric care? This person is saying, no, these concerns are real. Regardless of whether or not the world believes that those concerns are real, that person believes they're real. So I become this person. They don't want to talk to you because why do I want to tell the psychiatric nurse? That means everybody thinks that I'm crazy. I'm going to talk to the police officer because that person is going to take my concerns.
1: So maybe we can pick up on that. Uh, speaking that's someone that has um, feelings uh, persecution. Um, mm-hmm. um, what about people who are hearing voices, or uh, perhaps some visual? What do you? How do you respond? You know, to them in a way that builds trust.
0: I think one of the most, not least understood, part of psychotic disorders is perceptual disturbances. You know, visual hallucinations can be present in psychotic illnesses, but they're more often associated with deliriums more than anything. Yes, they can occur in other psychotic illnesses or other neurocognitive concerns. The interesting thing about if somebody is hearing voices or responding to perceptual disturbances is often that they will actually still just be interacting with you. They will still communicate with you. It's more on the other pieces that you really pick up that they are because of the persecutory concerns or paranoid ideation from what they're hearing or that they may be hearing not to trust me. And which means that I'm never going to get that information anyway. The cueing there is that this person is responding and it's often by what I'm seeing, which is, you know, thought blocking or that they're, they're not able to sort of vocalize their thoughts or they're distracted or they're not paying attention or their, their thoughts are coming, you know, there are loose associations when they're speaking, which is that sometimes they'll start a sentence and it will disappear it will be somewhere else or it will be sort of blocked or it will start off again and tangential and it will be going off in different directions. So it's not its not easy to form a connection there because there may not be an ability to form a connection. And I think that's where we go back to, like there are spaces where you cannot and the most you can do is like try to build trust in saying that I want to make sure it helped. But sometimes... It doesn't work, and they 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 don't want to listen to that, or they don't want to engage with that, or they they can't. They're not in a space to understand that, which is really challenging because it's like you want to get this person to do so by all will of their own, and sometimes they they won't, and they they're in such a state where they they do have to be brought in unwillingly, and this is where this is the really hard part that I think the public doesn't have this understanding of that we want people to get help, we call when we see somebody who's struggling or appears that they're under the influence or they're struggling with some sort of psychotic disorder, but then sometimes that space means that they have to be taken to a hospital without their want or their will to do so. And so I think we have to really understand that there, that there is an ugly part to that, yeah. that we do have to take them in unwillingly. We have aspects within our legislation. The Mental Health Act is, exists, specifically to make sure that people's rights are met, but also that we are concerned that without treatment, you will come to harm. And this is the part that I think is really so hard, is that who is going to enforce that? It's not going to be me as a nurse. It's not going to be a doctor that's going to do that. We are not trained or provided the skills to make sure that people are taken unwillingly to a space to get help. And that's why partnerships are really important. But I think those partnerships just have to be combined in a caring way, in an educated way, and in an understanding way. I guess to answer your question in full, Pat, is that there are times when you cannot form a connection.
1: Right.
0: And you have to make a decision.
1: And that's hard. Uh, it's it's hard on everyone. I'm I'm hearing that. If we can go back to the voices a little bit. So you've given a situation where someone, uh, you are trying to make a connection with that person and you're not getting anything back that is indicating that they're, they're moving along with you. So there are situations that you've described where you think that someone is. Being distracted by something, and that could be voices that that they're hearing. Um, do will people tell you that they are hearing voices, uh, or what would uh, what would you say if someone said to you that you know started telling you
0: things that they they were hearing? Sometimes people will tell me that they're hearing something. Sometimes they will tell me what they're saying other times i'm garnering information by the responses that they have which is that you know don't tell him that don't tell him that or you know well he just wants to bring you to the hospital that's not the case and like you're getting an understanding kind of hearing the other side of the conversation so sometimes you hear it by not hearing it but by making inferences based on the responses that you're getting because they're not talking directly to you sometimes they will tell you directly you know when we often Within psychiatry, we talk about named voices being more of a concern uh, that that person, if they're hearing something or they're hearing a specific person, and then there is a name attached to it that is more concerning. And then also we often talk about command hallucinations, and that's where they're hearing the voice of a particular person or item or being that is telling them to do things and that they feel this compulsion to do so. And it's especially concerning if that person is of religious significance. And in that instance, uh, I go back to my mentor, and he had always told me, he said, We're always worried about religious preoccupations and religious pre perceptual disturbances because it means that they answer to a higher power, they answer to somebody that oversees or is above the rule of law. And so the decisions they make will be, right, this deity is telling me I need to do this. That supersedes so much. So again, we will hear that. And then to to answer the second part, which is like, how do I know what they're saying is that I ask, name them, name the conversation, ask what they're hearing. If you can't hear it, saying like, you seem to be distracted. You seem to be talking to somebody. What are you? What are you responding to? What are you hearing? I'm. I'm not hearing something, but I can see that you are. Can you tell me what it is? And it de- again, it depends on that level of trust or that person's willingness to talk to you about it.
1: Right. Thank. Thank you for that. I'm wondering if there are certain words and phrases, and you've given us some uh, that are particularly helpful when you're. Helping someone who is acutely ill, you know, when they're perhaps not in crisis, but uh, experiencing severe mental illness symptoms. You've talked about eye language and different things about making connection. Just just wondering if there's anything else that you're, or maybe things that we shouldn't shouldn't be doing. Yeah. You know, what, what isn't I mean. helpful? What what destroys the trust and
0: connection? You're asking me all the tough questions.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, and I know what isn't helpful, sarcasm, talking around that person, laughing, not focusing on that person in the conversation. You know, if somebody is paranoid and you're speaking to another person around them, how quickly do you think that that person might start thinking that you're talking about them as I said earlier buying into the delusion buying into this abnormality as it's perceived, you know, like, Oh yeah, I totally hear those too. do Don't do that. Never do that. Because one, it's can solidify things, but it can also be perceived as disingenuous. You know, um, I think, I think the root of a lot of what I've been saying here over the course of our conversations to be genuine, to be, a human being and be connected to that person and understanding their story and their narrative is being a person that is willing to listen and willing to build a connection. And I think that, you know, people may not be able to articulate why they don't trust you, but if they feel that you're being disingenuous, that, that, we talk about this all the time in nursing, that gut feeling, you know, when something's not right. And whether that's because your subconscious is Piecing all these little parts together that you're not 100% aware of, or through your experience and then your back catalog of of events that you've gone through. But we know when somebody is being disingenuous with us, we really do, unless they're really good at it, you can tell. And so understand that regardless of that person's psychiatric state, they can tell when you're not being genuine. So don't talk about them, talk to them. Don't laugh at things don't you know be sarcastic in your responses and I, I've seen that I've seen that when people who are not experienced not trained and it creates such a rift in that connection that is almost irreparable you know and we're, we're all guilty of it we're all guilty of saying the wrong thing or perhaps you know in in psychiatry in medicine and I and I say these as disciplines that nursing is connected to, not necessarily specific to physicians. I think we see people who come to the hospital a lot for a variety of reasons, whether this is because they they aren't able to cope at home or through medical complications. And, And people can tell when people are treating them like a burden, a burden on the healthcare system, a burden on your time, and they respond to that. And I think that you kind of have to go again, take a step back and realize this person is doing the best they can, the tools that they have. And why do people keep coming back to the hospital? Because it worked and they're trying to get it to work again.
1: Yes. Those are uh, seem like wise words for us to be wrapping up this conversation. Uh, if people feel heard uh, and that you are being authentic and they feel safe, it sets up a much better dynamic for care uh, and and that's hard work this communication uh is is not easy you're you're responding it, it reminds me of improv i'm thinking about you know how you're getting cues and working with whatever you're getting you're getting back and and accepting it
0: yeah i think that that kind of ties to that last piece which is you know what are resources or what are tools that you would suggest <laughs> you know I can chuckling chucklingly refer to your class as something that I would refer people to because it is about communication but it's also that you have that improv as a this uh as as the, what you were like trying to model after that you tried to like you know you're I guess, inspired by improv. Yes. And I think that that's, which is just that you don't know what a situation is going to be like and you're just going to have to respond to things, but you have to respond to things quickly and yet also authentically. And so how, how do you train for that? How, other than to practice? Yeah. And be okay with being wrong sometimes.
1: Yes. And I, I think what I've also heard you say is the mentorship really makes a huge yes difference for people and so how important it is for nurses to mentor each other uh, around around this. Matthew, thank you for sharing your time and your experience and insights. It's been really helpful and interesting and enjoyable. and uh,
0: I'm glad you're out there doing all that great work. Thank you for honestly having me on and allowing me the opportunity.
1: For listeners interested in resources regarding mental health, please visit our website, www.radicalnursetalk.com. There's a link to a resource selected by Matthew to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, otherwise known as CAMH. And uh, there is a particular link to the Mental Health Help and Resources including help in crisis. Thanks for listening. You can reach me or information about this episode on our website, www.radicalnursetalk.com. The producer editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos Foley, social media by Amy Strachan. And if you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Join me next week for more Radical Nurse Talk. In the meantime, have a radical conversation in your practice. It can change lives.